So when I played basketball growing up, I played in church leagues where I typically was one of the better players on my team. You know, I think I was about maybe an inch shorter at this time than I am right now and an undisclosed amount of weight lighter at that time. Uh, but I, I was typically one of the better players on my team. And it was because I played in church leagues and I eventually joined in. This is not bragging. I eventually joined in with other rec league teams when I was in middle school and I was severely humbled by how good those players were. But then when I got to high school, I actually, I made the JV2 team at my school. And at the start of the season, I actually got plenty of playing time. I started out as the first guy off the bench coach seemed to have a lot of faith in me, but by the end of the season, through sickness and injuries and several other circumstances, the coach actually lost faith in me and put me towards the end of the bench, and I only played a few minutes every single game. I was constantly discouraged. I was frustrated that I had been put at the end of the bench, but one of the things I struggled with most in that transition was the mindset of saying, I need to be ready at any moment to play instead of focusing on my discouragement. And it certainly didn't help that my teammates would constantly talk to me and say, man, the coach is really treating you unfairly. You should be playing. And so I had to learn to stay focused while I was sitting on the bench waiting for my turn to jump into the game, play as hard as I could with the minutes that I did get. And I think in the same way, when we follow Jesus, we always have to be ready for his return to happen at any time. As we're going to see today, Jesus predicts that he could come back at any moment. He's given us signals that should keep us on our toes to be ready for that return. So we don't know the exact time. And so that means we must be always ready by how we are living. But unfortunately, the cares of our lives, sin and discouragement from persecution can cause us to not constantly be ready for Christ's return. You see, it's easy for us to get caught up in our careers, our families, our, our hobbies, activities, and school, and forget about what God wants from us. And sometimes we can get so caught up in a habitual sin or addiction, or we can't see our general sinfulness that we have, and that, so that we are unable to hear from God because our attention and focus is so consumed by that thing. So Jesus is going to make it very clear for us today. The end is coming. It's coming soon, and it will come as a complete surprise. So we need to be ready. And so we ask the question, what do we do while we wait for Jesus' return? Do we just kind of stare up at the sky and just wait in that way? Or do we, are there things that he has called us to do? So what we do is to trust in Christ's work to help us stand firm and live in constant readiness for our finished redemption. We don't trust in our own strength, but we trust in his to do what we cannot do for ourselves. And we are to stand firm in what he has done for us on the cross and live in constant readiness for what he has yet to do, but has promised to do. So this morning, we're going to focus on two things that we need to learn of what we're going to do to wait for Jesus's return. So I invite you to turn in a Bible to Luke chapter 21. We'll be going through verses 5 through 36. You can use a phone Bible or you need, if you have a physical Bible and you don't know where the, the book, gospel of Luke is, feel free to use a table of contents. There is no shame to do that. So let me give you just a quick background in terms of the book of Luke. 
Luke wrote like a really good investigative reporter. He used eyewitness testimonies to give detail and credence to the claims of Jesus so that Luke's audience would come to believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world, the Messiah. And Luke's narrative is heading towards Jerusalem and heading towards Jesus's crucifixion on the cross. And in today's passage, Jesus is going to make a prediction of the future to prove that he is the Messiah and that he has a greater authority than the religious leaders of the day. So let's begin and start by reading verse 5. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, stop. The temple that stood in Jesus' day was the renovated second temple originally built when the Israelites returned from exile in Babylon. And it was extravagantly renovated by Herod the Great, who was the king when Jesus was born. And overall, the total time it took to renovate the temple was 97 years. Like, we bought a house a few years ago, and we've been slowly renovating as God provides money. 97 years is a much too long of a project for anybody, all right? But this temple reflected more of the character of Herod than it did of God. It was built to twice its original size. It had gold plates covering the facade, but it had white marble on the higher parts of the wall that sometimes would be up to 70 feet high. And it was built in terms of the structure with stones that were upwards of 67 and a half feet long. This was an extravagant thing that they did. So these stones that are referenced in this passage could be that size, 67 and a half feet long. And so the disciples, seeing this temple this way, they were way more focused on the grandeur and splendor of the temple and their cultural identity within it. I always find it funny, like, as if Jesus didn't know about these stones and didn't, like, see it growing up because he always went to the temple. Why were they pointing this out to them? Because the temple for the Jews was an incredible symbol of their identity as a people. But for Jesus, this particular second temple that was renovated symbolized for Jesus the current religious leaders' tyranny and oppression over the most vulnerable in their society with the way that they orchestrated their system of obeying the law. So for Jesus, the destruction of the temple was another way of taking out the old and bringing in the new. Or more accurately, really, going back to what God intended it to be. Verse 6. But Jesus said, As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. This prediction is shocking that the temple is going to be destroyed, especially when you consider the major size of these stones. But this happened at the hands of the Romans in A.D. 70 because of certain conflicts that were happening between the Jews and the Romans. And actually, many secular scholars look at this particular story and they say, well, because Jesus made this prediction and it be actually came true, there's no way the Gospel of Luke was written before A.D. 70. It had to be written afterwards. But that's their only piece of evidence. It's just that they don't believe in predictive prophecy in any way, shape, or form. They have no other evidence to say so. So at this point, we have to take it at its word that this is when, that Jesus predicted this and this did happen. Verse 7. Teacher, they asked, when will, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? 
You see, the disciples want to know, okay, Jesus just told us this crazy thing that's going to happen. They want to know, okay, when is that going to happen? How do we know it's coming? Because this is totally outside the way that they think about the Messiah. In their mind, the Messiah is supposed to be this conquering political hero. But instead, what Jesus is going to tell them is that they are to expect persecution when his new kingdom is ushered in. Completely outside the realm of what they were thinking. And so Jesus' answer to their question is really surprising in verse 8. He replied, Watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name claiming, I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. So he tells them, don't be deceived, because there's going to be teachers who are going to come along and, and say, I am the Messiah, or the time is near. And he's saying, don't listen to them. Don't obey them. And this is really important for us to understand in our day and age, because there are teachers who have come out and they have come and said, I know when the time is coming. I can tell you. I can predict it. But Jesus has very clearly said, only the Father knows. Only God knows. So we, anytime we hear somebody make that statement, that should immediately say, all right, well, I'm done listening to whatever they have to say. Because Jesus has said, don't listen to them. Do not follow them. But second, Jesus says there's going to be signals that this event is actually coming, and we'll discuss those signals in a couple minutes. But ultimately, the story is about who is the one that has the authority. Is it Jesus, or is it the religious leaders in the temple, as symbolized by the temple? So by predicting that the temple is going to be destroyed, Jesus is showing, I am the one who has the authority. I am the one who is in control of what's happening. And so his prediction here about the temple would absolutely validate him and his ministry because he predicted it correctly. Verse 9. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. So these signs he's going to give, they're going to come first before the temple is destroyed. But notice he says something here. The end will not come right away. Jesus is already telling his disciples and, and by extension telling us that he is not going to return right away. There is going to be this gap period, and our gap period has ended up being close to 2,000 years. We're very impatiently waiting, I think, at this point for Jesus to return. But from here, we see Jesus utilize this story of the destruction of Jerusalem and destruction of the temple as a springboard to then talk about things that are going to happen at the end, in the final days of earth. But let's see these signs, verses, verses 10 and 11. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven. So these two verses right here are a really quick summary of what is to come and what Jesus will ultimately talk about throughout the rest of the passage. But here are the signs. Wars and conflicts between nations, natural disasters, famines and plagues, fearful events, great signs from the sky. You, I want you to notice something here. You might have noticed it yourself. You, as is the case here with Jesus, oftentimes these signs seem so general that they could be applied to any time in history. All of these things have been happening ever since Jesus left. And in my personal opinion, when the end actually does come, I think these things are going to be on a much larger scale than we've ever experienced before. But these signs are still general enough that all Christians throughout the history of the church would be left on their toes, always ready for his return. Jesus does this on purpose 
so that the church is always seeing these signs and always going, okay, we need to be ready because there's an urgency to what we are to be doing as a people of God. Verse 12, but before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison and you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. So before this utter chaos that's going to happen in the world and the destruction of the temple, there's going to be this great persecution. And this persecution is going to be, do be done by both Jews and Gentiles, basically by everybody. And not just by rulers and authorities, but also by family members as well. People that the disciples should absolutely trust with their lives are going to betray them. What a promise for Jesus to make. Want to sign up to follow Jesus? Everyone's going to hate you. Thanks, Jesus. That sounds nice. Verse 13. And so you will bear testimony to me, but make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. So Jesus tells them that they, are going to sh they will share the gospel during this time. These are going to be opportunities for them. So this persecution doesn't have to be something that brings you down, but instead says, okay, I have a mission, I have a job, I'm going to do it. But notice how that this defending of themselves has nothing to do with physical defense, but only in defending the message and spreading of the gospel. You see, this has to be our priority as well, to prioritize defending the truth of the gospel and what we believe as followers of Jesus and not ourselves and not other opinions of things that we have in the world. So Jesus, make sure you understand this, is telling his disciples this persecution is an opportunity to share and defend the gospel. It's not a sign. The persecution is not a sign of this gospel being a failure. Verse 15. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. So look at this. He tells us not to be worried beforehand what we're going to say. And here's the reason. Because he's going to give them the words to speak. The words, I love this, and wisdom to speak. It's an amazing thing. Such that the adversaries of them will not be able to resist or contradict what is being said. And so the disciples, they don't need to worry about what they will say. And we see this promise fulfilled in the book of Acts, which was also written by Luke. And so make sure you understand this as well. This promise is not a guarantee that everyone who hears the gospel is then going to surrender their lives to Jesus, but that God in his spirit is going to enable the disciples to speak boldly for him and also very convincingly. And I think this also really applies for us. Our job is not to save people. Our job is simply to present the message of the good news of Jesus to people. That's our main job. And so when we have opportunities to share the gospel and defend why we follow Jesus, remember this, God will give the words and the wisdom for us to speak. So don't be afraid when you approach those moments, but remember, God will give you the words and the wisdom. And as I mentioned earlier, this persecution is not just going to come from ruling authorities, but from family members too. This is not something that's going to be fun for these disciples. And this is exactly what happened after Jesus ascended into heaven. He, there was this long period of time before the destruction of the temple. And during that entire time, Christians underwent severe persecution. And even after that time as well. So we ask the question, why is this going to happen? Verse 17. Everyone will hate you because of me. 
but not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. So it's the reason this is happening is because of what Jesus says right away here. Everyone will hate you because of me. You could just see that as a slogan of Jesus trying to get people to follow him. Want to be my follower? Everyone will hate you because of me. But it's the reality. Jesus never shies away from that. Because what he taught ran so counter against the wisdom of the world, he knew that the world would hate him. And then his followers would be hated as well because of their association with him. And so thus they're going to be persecuted even by their own family. But then it's curious that Jesus says, not a hair of your head will perish right before he says some of, or or right earlier he said, some of you are going to be put to death. That seems like a contradictory thought, but here's what I think he means. In Luke 12, 7, Jesus says, even the hairs of your head are all counted. Your entire life is in the hands of a good, loving, and sovereign God who will not let your eternal life perish. He is the one who holds your eternal destiny, not whatever a ruler, authority, or family member may do to you in this life. So even if Even if you are killed in this life for standing up for Jesus, your eternal life is held in his mighty hands. And then he says to stand firm, which means to put your hope and trust in God alone and that your future is absolutely certain in him. And then he says you will win life. This doesn't mean winning at life, as some might say, but this means gaining or acquiring the true, abundant, and eternal life in Christ. And so here is our first focus for this morning, that we need to stand firm in Christ despite persecution. You see, Jesus clearly stated that his followers will be hated because of him. Whether we want to believe it or not, persecution of Christians is far more the norm in human history than it is the exception. It is happening around the world right now at an alarming rate. And we would be fools to think that we will never experience this, even in our own country. So we put our hope in God, and not in any current form of safety or prosperity that we've had in this country as Christians, but we stand firm in Christ instead. Our confidence is in Him and nothing else. So then we ask, how can we stand firm when the persecution comes? First, We learn to become dependent on the Lord's strength to guide us and to provide for us in our moments of need. We trust that he is the one that's going to provide the strength that we need. I want you to think about this for a second. How many times have you thought in your life, you've seen somebody else going through something and you said, I could never handle that. But then when you go through the same thing, you found that you could sense God giving you the strength to go through it. Or maybe you looked back on a really difficult season in your life and you thought in your mind, I don't know if I can handle this much longer. But yet you found over and over again that you kept having the strength. It's because God is the one who's giving you that strength. He is the one leading you. He is the one that is providing what you need in those moments. And I think he's going to do the exact same thing for us to help us stand firm when persecution comes our way. Let's continue verse 20. When you see yourself being surrounded by armies, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. And so after a long and intentional like tangent that Jesus goes on here, he finally begins to answer the question that was originally posed to him in verse 7 about the destruction of the temple. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, 
you know that the destruction is near. And we have to ask the question, well, why is this destruction happening? It seems like it's kind of coming out of nowhere. You see, Jesus seemed to hint at this destruction coming just a, ch- a couple chapters earlier in Luke 19, 43 through 44, as being because the majority of the Israelites rejected him, would reject him and the message of the gospel. Verse 21, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out and let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. So in this instance, it would simply be better for the people in the city to flee the danger rather than try to fight back. Verse 23. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. You see, this verse right here should create a very emotional response, especially for those of us who have families and have been through those seasons of life and how precious those can be. And to say that's how they're going to react, they're going to be in distress, it helps us relate to this and to see, wow, this is going to be a really serious and intense time for people and of the time of distress. Verse 24, they will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So this is a really interesting thing that Jesus is doing here. First, he's, making, he's continuing that claim, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed, it's going to be taken over, the, the temple's going to be destroyed. And then he says they're gonna, this is going to happen by Gentiles, and as we know, this happened at the hands of the Romans. But then he says, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And here's what I think he's saying. I think Jesus is saying that God's attention for redemption would shift suddenly away from the people of Israel to people of Gentiles. And I don't know about you, unless you have some secret Jewish heritage in you that I don't know about. I would think all of us in here are Gentiles, and we are now a benefit of this shift in God's focus. But it's not the end for Israel. Keep that in mind. That's a whole nother conversation, probably an entire sermon, actually. Verse 25, there will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. See, the conversation Jesus is having here shifts drastically away from the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem to the end of the world. And the language here is purposefully apocalyptic. Like there's going to be this sudden and drastic change of the world order. Cataclysmic things are going to start happening and people will not have a sense of what is actually going on. It will be utter chaos. There will be great anxiety and fear. And these signs connect back to verse 11 in this chapter about all these signs that are going to come from heaven. But I think they more directly connect to passages in the Old Testament talking about the day of the Lord where the wicked will be judged and the righteous are going to be rescued. And it's the Lord himself who is going to come and be the one to do the judging. And as we're going to see in a minute, Jesus says that he is the one that's going to come and do this. Let's look at it. Verse 27. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. You see, it is at this particular moment the people on the earth will see the coming of the Son of Man. And this term, the Son of Man, references back to Daniel chapter 7, to this character that appears that looking like a Son of Man who comes to judge and to conquer the world. And so this is, the Jews viewed this character as God himself coming. 
And Jesus frequently equates himself with this character, making himself out to be God. This is an insane claim for him to make. But Luke repeatedly identifies Jesus with this son of man character, saying that Jesus is God. Remember, that was one of his intentions in writing this book. You see, the Son of Man coming in power and great glory should be a symbol of tremendous hope for us who are believers, but great fear for those who don't believe, because again, he's coming to judge the wicked and to rescue the righteous. So Jesus gives different advice for how his followers ought to respond to these events. Instead of fear, they must respond in confidence with a raised head, looking to see their Lord coming to bring about their final redemption. See, redemption in the Old Testament is this beautiful concept. It refers to God's intervening on behalf of his people, the Israelites, and rescuing them from their enslavement and into freedom. And the same thing goes for us as followers of Jesus. When we are redeemed, we are taken out of our enslavement to sin and moved into freedom in Jesus Christ. Because you see, when Jesus, who lived a perfect life as God in a human body, died on our behalf on the cross, he purchased our redemption. But this redemption is not fully complete because we still live in this broken world. But Jesus' return and him taking us to be with him for eternity is the final step where this redemption will be finalized. And Jesus is saying here that this final redemption, it's drawing near. It will happen soon. So again, his coming at the end is good news for those who believe in him, but really bad news for those who don't. And it's also happening soon to keep us focused on living for him and to be ready. Verse 29. He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the, fi all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. So Jesus uses this parable to visualize what he's saying and kind of a way to exhort the disciples. In summary, this parable is telling the disciples to constantly be ready, watching for the signs that are coming, no matter what could potentially be happening at the time. Whether the persecution is happening or the destruction of Jerusalem, or they're simply in a period of waiting for his return like we are. When you see the signs we mentioned earlier this morning, the kingdom of God is coming near. Just like you can look at the trees, see leaves sprouting, and know that summer is on its way. And it really is. We're only just a few months, even though truly we're just starting spring. Verse 32. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So Jesus says something really curious at this point. This generation is not referring to the disciples, but to the generation of people who reject him as Messiah. Well, if you think about that, people have been rejecting him, have, uh, rejecting him as Messiah ever since he left this earth. And so this is something that Christians should always expect, that there's going to be resistance to Jesus, his gospel message, and his kingdom. And so our response, instead of holding on to the things of this world as permanent, we hold on to the things of Jesus and his message as permanent. Meaning that his gospel message of the redemption of people to relationship with God is something that is never going to pass away. This will always be a reality. Verse 34. Be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing drunkenness and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. 
So now Jesus is giving very specific instructions on what to do to prepare for his return. First, he tells them to be careful not to fall into despair and sin as a result of the fact that it could be a while before Jesus returns. And honestly, I think this is a really big issue in American Christianity. We kind of have gotten lulled into a living as in a business-as-usual mentality, and we don't consider how we ought to be living for Jesus sometimes in this cultural moment. This is something that is so easy even for me to do. I have a really hard time with this. But he is telling them as well, don't be controlled by sin, which is something that is out of character for a follower of Jesus. Carousing and drunkenness are kind of along the same lines, about of becoming so inebriated that you lose control of yourself. You see, I think sin in its many forms, not just in carousing and drunkenness, can kind of look like this. See, Jesus is encouraging us not to be overcome by any sin so as to lose control as a result of having to wait for his return. But he's also avoid, telling them to avoid letting the anxieties of life weigh us down while we wait. Focusing on the stress of the day-to-day life in front of us rather than focus on the purposes of God around us and ahead of us. Rather than outright failing God in sin, it's about a wrong focus and being unprepared as a result. And that before we know it, Jesus is going to return at a time we are not ready. You see, you might even think to yourself, I have time to get my life together. I have time to change my priorities and live for him better or to surrender my life to him. I can stop doing what I'm doing whenever I want. But Jesus is making it really inescapably clear here. The truth is we do not have time to wait. The time to make a decision is now what we are going to do. Verse 35. For it will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen. And that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. So again, Jesus is very clear. This return will come on everyone. And this choice to be prepared for his return is before everyone. So he first tells them again to be on the watch. Always be on the watch. Always be watching for the signs. Be on guard from falling into temptation or to be overly focused on the cares of this life. Instead, watch and wait for his return and live in a way that shows that you are prepared. And so Jesus lays out the choice clearly to us in the form of a prayer, something in, in a sense we pray to God, asking him to do this work in our lives, to escape all that is about to happen in terms of the return of Christ and his judgment and to be able to stand before the Son of Man blameless on that day. How are we able to stand blameless before him? This first happens through recognizing that we have sinned against a perfect, holy God. That we have been the ruler of our lives and chosen our own ways. And that we want to change. We want to get a second chance at life. We want to be made a new person and to make God be our king instead of ourselves. We place our faith in Jesus Christ and his work alone who lived without sin and then died on the cross on our behalf, taking our sin upon himself to pay the price for our sin. And that he rose from the dead, showing that his payment was enough to cover completely and forgive our sin. So that when we place our faith in Jesus, our sin is totally forgiven. We will be given God's spirit to change us and wash us clean forever from our sin. So that we stand before God blameless and spotless. 
and forgiven. And so because the time is near for Jesus to return, the time to make a decision to follow him is now. Will you choose to take up his offer of forgiveness and follow him today if you have not done so yet? And for those of you who have, the choice is before you to obey the second focus, to live in constant readiness for Christ to return and bring about our finished redemption. See, our focus must be on Christ and his purposes alone. No matter how tempting it is to focus on the cares of this life or to fall into sin. And to live in constant readiness means a few things. First, to always be on mission for him. Since we don't know when he will return, we need to share the message of the gospel to as many people as we possibly can so that they can hear about the good news of Jesus. Second, we must depend on his Holy Spirit living in us to do the work through us. Because in ourselves, we do not have the strength, the power, or the capability to do it. He will give us what we need to live a godly life according to 2 Peter chapter 1. And he will give us the words we need to speak and the wisdom to speak convincingly as we learned today. And again, he will do the work to change people's hearts who we want to pursue for Christ. And then third, we remember that no matter what happens, Jesus is coming to win the day soon and bring about our redemption. He will finish what he started when we came to faith in him and fully purchase us out of this sinful world for a better world with him. Without sin, death, disease, fear, doubt, war, conflict, and hatred. All will be gone when Jesus returns as he wins the ultimate victory and he ushers in a kingdom of righteousness, holiness, justice, grace, love, mercy, hope, forgiveness, and our redemption. So Jesus made it very clear in this passage this morning that he could return at any moment when we least expect it. Since we cannot predict the timing of his return, there is great urgency to follow after him and to live for him in this life. So let's ask ourselves these questions this morning. Are we prepared for his return? Have we given our lives to Jesus to follow him and thus be able to stand before Jesus on judgment day totally blameless? Are we living in constant readiness for his return? Or will we be ashamed for how we spent our lives when he returns? Or will we have poured out our lives, every ounce of our lives and our energy for his glory? But if also you're afraid of facing persecution, if, you, if that means you step out to follow Jesus more boldly, remember that God will give you the words to speak and give you the wisdom to speak convincingly. Trust in him to do that work for you. But stand firm if you do face persecution because we ought to expect it since Jesus said that the world would hate us because of him. So I want, you, I want to encourage you with a couple things this morning. First of all, look over your weekly schedule and see if you can reprioritize things to have your focus be set on Jesus and the work he wants to do through you. Ask God to reveal areas in your life where changes need to be made and trust in him to give you the strength to do it. Ask God to give you courage to share the gospel message more boldly than you ever have before because the time is near for Jesus to return. But lastly, choose today to follow Jesus, who offers a great salvation to avoid this coming judgment. Don't leave today. Don't walk away from the stream this morning without talking to someone you know or contacting one of the pastors here 
about what it means to follow, to follow Jesus, and you want to follow Jesus for the very first time in your life, it's the most important decision you will ever make. And let us remember what we learned this morning, that we need to trust in Christ's work on our behalf to help us stand firm and live in constant readiness for our finished redemption. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you have opened up the door for us to be able to live for you. Jesus, we ask for your spirit to help us to stand firm and to live in this constant readiness. But God, you even said it in this passage this morning. You have already promised you will give us the words and the wisdom to speak. In other passages in the, in the Bible, you have promised you will give us what we need to live for you. So Jesus, help us to do that. Help us to depend on you. Help us to trust in you. And Jesus, we pray for the people that we want to share the gospel with. God, help I pray that you would soften their hearts so that they would want to hear it. And Jesus, we love you. We lay our lives before you. We pray that our lives would be focused completely on you. And we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.